Please open your Bible to Exodus chapter 18. If you're using the church Bible, that passage is found on page 70. In chapter 17, which we looked at last week, Israel encountered Amalek, a distant relative who launched an unprovoked attack against Israel in the wilderness. Now in chapter 18, Israel is going to meet another distant relative in the wilderness, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, who is also the priest of the Midianites. And yet these two uh, figures represent two divergent responses to the work that God is doing in Israel. Okay, Amalek attacks Israel and falls under God's judgment and is defeated. Jethro uh, blesses the God of Israel, comes alongside Israel, and is in return blessed for it. Exodus 18 itself, this chapter we're about to read, is neatly divided in two halves. It breaks on the turning of the day in verse 13. And the two halves of this chapter really match the two halves of the book of Exodus as a whole. Verses 1 through 12 look back to God's work of deliverance and celebrate it. Verses 13 through 27 look forward to the proper administration of God's law and the leadership of his people. So it kind of is showing us, here's what's happened, here's what's coming. Let's uh, listen as I read Exodus 18, the whole chapter. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other is Eliezer. For he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit around alone? Or sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. 
and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. This is God's word. Uh, This morning I have two points that try to match the two halves of this chapter. First, God's work should be declared. And second, God's people should be organized. God's work should be declared and God's people should be organized. First, God's work should be declared. God's work should be declared. The chapter begins with Jethro, the priest of Midian, and Moses' father-in-law, hearing about all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. We never hear or we never find out how Jethro hears this news. Uh, You can imagine perhaps caravans like the one that took Joseph down to Egypt, took the stories from Egypt, all that had happened out back into the Sinai region. And when they stop at an oasis for the night, they talk about it with other uh, uh, caravans, other travelers out in that area, and words quickly spreads throughout the region. Uh, It's easy to imagine because that's the way news about God's work often spreads. In the second century after Christ, One critic of Christianity complained, and he uses harsh word here, but remember this is a critic complaining, not my word, but he says uh, he objects to Christianity because it's being spread by, quote, stupid women gossiping Christianity over their laundry. That's how this religion is spreading. Yes, of course, the missionary journeys of Paul and the other apostles were very important to the spread of the gospel. But equally important to spread this good news about Jesus is ordinary people chatting Jesus to their friends and neighbors, women gossiping Christianity over their laundry. Well, at any rate, word gets to Jethro. He heard all that God had done, and now he orchestrates a family reunion bringing Moses' wife, Zipporah, and his two sons, Gershom and Eliezer, out to meet Moses in the wilderness. Again, there's a gap here. Exodus never tells us when Moses had sent his family back to Midian. 
We hear about Moses' family traveling with him in Exodus 4. Remember, there's that strange story where Zipporah sac- uh, circumcises her son in order to avoid Moses being put to death. And then maybe at that point, Zipporah says, you know what, we'll wait at dad's and when you get back out into the wilderness, then we'll come meet you. Or maybe when Moses got to Egypt and saw that the Pharaoh was not going to let them go right away, he thought, this is going to be a bigger task than I had thought. You guys need to go somewhere safe until this is over. Whatever the case, they're here now. And the narrator reminds us in this strange aside that Moses gave uh, Gershom his name because, quote, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. The name Gershom sounds like the word sojourner. And we were already told that all the way back in chapter 2, if you've been here for this series. Moses grew up in Egypt as part of the Pharaoh's own household, but it wasn't his own people. He was a sojourner in Pharaoh's household. And then he fled Egypt, lived in Midian, where he married, had children, and yet again, he was a foreigner in a strange land. He was a sojourner. And yet now after the Exodus, for the first time, we're told the name of Moses' second son, and the significance of that name. His name is Eliezer. The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Those two names together kind of outline the plot so far. Okay, Exodus begins with Israel living as sojourners in a foreign land, but now together they can say the God of our fathers has been our help and has delivered us from the sword of Pharaoh. Okay, Jethro's bringing the family to meet Moses. He sends word to Moses that they're on their way. Moses goes out of camp to meet them. And the focus of this chapter is really on Jethro and Moses interacting. And so we, uh, you know, it's not a biography of Moses. We don't see all of his personal life. And so the reunion with his wife and kids, we never get any mention of that. It's just focused on the reunion between Moses and Jethro. So verse 7 reports this very warm greeting. Married men, I don't know when the last time you kissed your father-in-law was, okay? But it is a very warm greeting that he gives to Jethro. Again, throughout verses 1 through 12, the focus is on Jethro and what he's doing coming to Moses. Verse 1, he's heard what God has done. He's heard the rumors. 2 and 5, he gathers together the family, takes them to meet Moses. Verse 6, he sends word to Moses And then verses 9, he rejoices in the work the Lord's been doing. Verse 10, he blesses the God of Israel. Verse 12, he leads Israel in worship by offering sacrifices. Jethro is the main actor doing all the stuff in this chapter, except right there in verse 8, in the very middle, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. Uh, This word that our translation uses, Moses told, elsewhere in Exodus, our our ESVs have translated as uh, proclaimed. It can mean recounted, declared, proclaimed. It's important to know that because back in 916, God told Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. It's the same word here that's coming to fulfillment. Moses is proclaiming God's work, his name, God's glory and might to the nations, represented by this Midianite priest. And it makes a decisive difference for Jethro. He heard rumor of God's work. 
He comes to where God's people are gathered together to investigate, and then he hears Moses declare God's work. And that's a turning point for Jethro. It's a fundamental difference in his life. He joins Israel in praising the Lord, Israel's God. Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of the Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro comes to share in Israel's faith. Is it a conversion? Uh, Is it a confirmation of his faith? It's not exactly clear, but he praises the Lord saying, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. He comes to know something new about the Lord, that he is preeminent, that he is greater than all the gods. Coming to know the Lord is one of the key themes of Exodus. Moses comes to know the Lord at the burning bush. Pharaoh and the Egyptians come to know the Lord through his signs and work in their land. Israel comes to know the Lord through his deliverance and his sustaining in the wilderness. Now Jethro, the first of the nations, comes to know the Lord as God declare, or Moses declares God's work to him. So hearing God's work declared leads to knowing God, which leads to joining God's people in rejoicing and praising the Lord. It's a model or a pattern for what's normal for the people of God. We rejoice for all the good that the Lord has done for his people. We delight in God's work. And of course, God's work didn't stop after the exodus. We too have heard life-changing, earth-shaking good news of all that the Lord has done through Jesus Christ. We, like the Israelites, were oppressed by controlling habits, addictions, enslaved by our own behaviors and snide attitudes. But Jesus came to set us free. We too were sojourners, living alienated from God, dislocated in the world, even detached from our very selves. But Jesus comes to lead us through the wilderness to life-changing encounter with God, to life-sustaining relationship with him, to restoring, integrating knowledge of God. We're selfish and rebel against God, like Israel does a number of times in the wilderness, and yet Jesus gave himself to deliver us from our selfishness, to redeem us from our sin. And so we too should rejoice for all the good that the Lord has done for his people. And one of the ways we rejoice is like Moses, recounting or declaring what the Lord has done. Jethro hears the details of God's work in verse 8, and then in verses 10 and 11, he repeats God's work. Uh, He repeats that story, declaring uh, what God has done and drawing applications for his own life. It's a basic pattern. We hear the good news. When we come to know God from hearing the good news, then we repeat the good news. If the good news of God's work is indeed life-changing, then we will declare it. That's the kind of stuff that we chat about with those around us. We'll end up gossiping Christianity with our neighbors and our coworkers. Just a, a couple observations on Moses' simple report. It's focused primarily on what the Lord has done. He doesn't mention himself at all. He doesn't say, I went into Pharaoh, da 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 No, he says, the Lord. It's a story about what the Lord has done. It doesn't seem to be overly elaborate. And here's the key thing. He doesn't leave out all the hardship that has come upon them on the way, okay? He's honest about the continued hardship. It's not glossed over. 
It's important when we declare the good news about God's work not to give an overly rosy picture of life as God's people. Okay, there's still hardship, there's still challenges, there are still struggles. But the Lord uses his people to proclaim his name throughout the earth to declare his work to all people. Well, verse 12 then ends with this wonderful scene of worship, feasting together before God, but then the next day. I wonder if any of you ever feel like this. You have a great Sunday, you enjoy worshiping and resting, and then you wake up the next day, and like Moses, uh, morning to evening, there are demands on you, your work is overwhelming, you feel, you know, what was all that about yesterday, worshiping, if this is what life is like on Monday morning? Well, verse 13 shifts or signals a shift in topic to the next day. And, and part of the point is that the good news isn't just about worship, but it also works its way out into the rest of our life. And particularly what the focus is here is on the second point, that God's people should be organized. God's people should be organized. Rejoicing, declaring God's work, welcoming others into a worshiping community is primary. That's central. But to support that sort of ongoing life in the church, there does need to be organization for God's people to flourish. And I know that's what everybody wants to hear about on Sunday mornings, organizational flowcharts for church polity. But the Bible leads us to reflect on things like the organization of God's people. Moses heads out to work the next day. He sits to judge the people from morning until evening. And Jethro, his father-in-law, and this kind of seems typical of father-in-laws, he tags along to see, you know, what in the world does my son-in-law actually do all day? And he sits and watches, and then he asks a father-in-law type question that seems tinged with disbelief. What in the world is this that you're doing all day long? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you morning until evening? This seems crazy, okay? Moses... uh, Note, uh, oh, then Moses explains. He says, well, the people come to inquire of God. And when they have a dispute or a, a thing, a matter, something that need, they need consultation on, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his law. Notice he's not just judging the cases, but in each case he's trying to teach them God's instructions, God's way of living. He doesn't just want to make all the tough calls himself, but he wants people to learn God's word to learn God's laws so that they can decide for themselves, hopefully, over time. Uh, That's kind of his plan for eventually working his way out of having to judge constantly all day long. Well, after this explanation, Moses' father-in-law offers both criticism and advice. And in a sense, a father-in-law is perfect for this role, okay? A father-in-law loves his son-in-law, he cares about him, but he's not going to pamper or spoil his son-in-law like a parent might their own child. Moses' father-in-law, to borrow Paul's language, speaks the truth in love to him, something he needs to hear. Well, first, the criticism. He says, what you're doing is not good. You and the people will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You will not be able to do it alone. It's no good. Okay, Moses can't do it by himself. God's people should be organized in a way that leadership is not concentrated in a single man or woman. Okay, no human can lead God's people on their own. It's simply too heavy. But then Jethro also insightfully notes that it will not only wear out Moses, but the people as well. 
It's not good for a leader or for the people, for the leader to overextend him or herself and to try to lead on their own. The leader will eventually get burnt out. Okay, it's bad for the leader. But it's also, Jethro notes, unhealthy for the people to only have one leader. We see this if we look around at churches. Churches can easily become personality cults where everything is centered on one head figure. And my own personal sense, I haven't done like demographic studies on this, but my own personal sense is it actually ends up destroying a church much quicker to focus on a single person than even to have theological errors or something like that. Turning a church into a personality cult is a quick way to destroy a church. But by sharing responsibility and opportunity and authority and leadership roles, a leader like Moses says, this church or ministry or school or business or project is more important than just me. Okay, this is primary and I need other people to come alongside me. It's not about me, but it's about what God is doing and we together need to participate in this work. And so in the context of a church, we need elders, deacons, a variety of lay leaders, assistant pastors on down the list to come alongside the pastor and share responsibility and authority in leading the church. And part of what that message is, is that the church is not just about the pastor, or it's not really about the pastor at all. It is about God and declaring his work and worshiping him together and growing in Christ together and serving our community. And that's a project that's more important than any one person. And so we all need to work together on that. Well, that's the criticism. This is no good. It's going to destroy you. It's going to destroy the people. But he's not just negative. Here's Jethro's brilliance. Uh, Father-in-laws take notes. If you do have to criticize, also have some helpful advice to follow up with there. Uh, Jethro proposes three things. He says, I'll give you some advice and God be with you. Listen to my word. You shall first represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. You keep doing that. Second, you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they should walk and what they must do. And then third, look for able men for all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs. They shall judge, let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they will bring to you, but the small matters they shall decide themselves, so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. Okay. Part of Moses' job, he simply can't delegate to others. He must continue to represent the people to God. He must continue to make intercession for them. That's a uh, non-negotiable, non-transferable task of every leader, to represent their people to God, to pray on behalf of their people. Furthermore, Jethro says, you yourself should continue in your teaching role, making known the statutes and the Torah and to show them how to walk, what and what to do. Okay, so he's saying those parts of your job you keep doing, but the third part of your job, which has apparently been occupying Moses from morning until evening, is something that can be partially delegated. So Jethro pro proposes a sort of tiered court system, okay? Let them handle the small matters, and if they can't figure it out, then they bring it to you. And, and notice you got the thousands, the hundreds, the fifties, the tens. There seems to be uh, uh, layers of oversight here that, you know, you can appeal to someone a bit farther up if you're not able to figure it out yourself. Note, uh, we're coming up soon on elder nomination, I think next month. Note the qualifications that Jethro proposes for men who can share the leadership of God's people. First, he says they need to be competent. 
Okay, they need to be competent. They need to have common sense. He says, look for able men who can actually do the job. But then most of the requirements have to do with character rather than competency. Second, they need to be men who fear God. They need to be godly, faithful men. Third, they need to be reliable, trustworthy, okay? There's no point in delegating to someone else if you're always unsure if they'll actually follow through. That doesn't help bear the burden. And fourth, they need to have integrity. They need to be men who hate bribes, who aren't looking to lead to simply promote themselves or to get rich. Okay, God uses people who are competent, godly, reliable, and have integrity to lead his people. Notice there's no requirement that they're intellectual or academic. Okay, if you are intellectual, God can use that to help his people. There's no requirement that they're charismatic uh, in their personality or their speech, although again, God can use that if you're a charismatic person. God certainly doesn't say, go find the most popular or the loudest or the people who are just like inserting themselves in everybody else's business. Okay, what he wants is leaders with common sense and earnest faith who are dependable and have integrity. And then Jethro concludes his advice with this telling line. If you do this and God directs you, you will, be able, you will be able to endure and all this people will go to their place in peace. Okay? If God's people are organized, their leaders can endure and the people will flourish. Okay? And of course, Moses is humble and so he takes the advice. He does what Jethro suggests. He says, I do need help. I'm going to delegate. I'm going to have other leaders come alongside me at various levels. And notice that he's willing to take wisdom from any source. Okay, sometimes the instinct might be to say, hey, look, uh, Jethro, you literally just converted last night. Let me run the people and you just let me do this, that kind of thing. But no, he's willing to take wisdom from whatever source it comes from. That's, again, a trait we should look for is, is Moses' humility and willingness to listen to wisdom. But the chapter ends with one thing still missing. One thing still missing. In verse 20, Jethro tells Moses that he needs to warn Israel about the statutes and laws to make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Okay? And yet they don't have statutes or laws yet. They don't yet know the way in which they should walk. Sharing leadership responsibility with godly leaders is a key ingredient for the people to flourish. But in and of itself, it's not enough. Just putting together a dream team of leaders and chiefs in itself is not the recipe for success. There's something else missing. What do they need to, be, to flourish as God's people? They need to be subject to God's word. And so it's pointing ahead at the end of chapter 18 here to what's about to come at Mount Sinai, that God will reveal to them his instructions for how to live together as God's people, how to worship him rightly. And then God's people can flourish organized under God's word when leadership is diffused among a variety of godly leaders at a variety of levels. To end... Organization is important, okay? The Bible stresses it a number of times. In, second, in 1 Timothy, we're in the evening, it's going to talk about different offices in the church. Okay, organization is important. But we always need to keep the first thing first. And what is the first thing? Declaring God's work and celebrating it in worship. That's the lifeblood of the church. 
Okay, that's the life of the people of God. That's the main thing, and it needs to stay the main thing. But in and of itself, it needs supplemented. Uh, uh, that worship, that rejoicing, that declaring God's word, it needs supplemented, it needs supported by healthy organization if people are to flourish. And we see both those truths held together here in, in uh, Exodus 18, okay? That it begins with declaring God's word that changes lives, and yet as God's people grow together, they need organization. I know it's not the most exciting point to end on, but we reflected earlier on the good news that we've all received already, that Christ Jesus has come to set his people free. Let's pray together. Lord, I ask for those who perhaps have never heard this good news declared before, that you are a God who is in the business of working to set people free, that you have indeed definitively worked in Christ Jesus to free us. For those who have never heard that message before, by your Holy Spirit be at work in their lives this morning, speaking to them this good news. Lord, for those of us who are part of this church and have been part of this church for a long time, I ask that you would help us to keep first things first, to not get caught up in questions of organization, but to focus on the importance of declaring the good work that you do in rejoicing and worshiping together as your people. And yet, Lord, help us not to neglect the importance of organization. Help us to continue to select capable, competent, godly leaders who can uh, support the work of this church in a variety of ways. Thank you, Lord, that year over year you have raised up men to the council who serve in humility and who fit this description here in Exodus 18. Indeed, Lord, we desire to see our church continue to flourish as we keep first things first, we declare your word, we sing your praises, and as we continually try to organize in a way that reflects your instructions in your word. We offer these prayers in the name of Christ Jesus, our great deliverer. Amen.